Hello, hello, hello. It's me, it's Cameron, and you're listening to Criminal Haunts. So, today's case, um, I'm just going to go ahead and give a blanket warning because it does involve rape, it does involve suicide, it does involve addiction, all of the above. It's just a big warning. Because some people are sensitive to that, and I'm just letting you know now, it's terrible. It's devastating from start to finish. Um, it was really hard to research, and it really, really put things into perspective of my own life. Because I do have younger sisters, and this just is, it's awful. Like, I could never understand or feel what these people felt. So, on September 24th, 1973, 18-year-old Becky Thompson was heading out to go get some groceries from the Thriftway store on 12th and Melrose Street in Casper, Wyoming, just before 9 p.m. She didn't want to go alone, so she asked her younger sister, Amy Burridge, I think that's how you say it, if she wanted to come. And so, Becky parked her Ford station wagon, went in, and started shopping, um, not knowing that this grocery run would ruin her life forever. So growing up, Amy was said to be a cute little tomboy. She loved to play baseball with the neighborhood boys. Um, they said that they would put her in the outfield to chase after the balls, but would never let her bat. But, I mean, she still enjoyed it. She loved to do it. She loved hanging out with the neighborhood boys. She was just and she was on the school's volleyball team, and they said that she was the spark and the energy of the team. She went out there, and she put her heart and soul into that, and she lifted everybody up. And her older sister, Becky, was known as the nice, bubbly, likable older girl in the neighborhood who had her own car and actually spoke to the younger boys. So you know how that goes. They all had a crush on her. They said she was very down to earth and she was very kind to everybody. So back to the story. When Becky and Amy came out of the store, they noticed that one of the tires on the car was flat and it was later determined that the tire had been sliced. <laughs> So a white Chevy Impala with two men inside pull up. Jerry Jenkins was driving and his passenger Ronald Kennedy gets out and tells Becky that they can take care of the tire. They'll take him to a station where they can repair it. And I mean, after talking with Kennedy, Becky tells Amy to call their mom and tell her about the situation. She told her mom that, quote, two nice men were going to help them fix the tire and they should be home later that night. So these scum motherfuckers had to have sat and watched these girls and then sliced their tires while they went inside or something and then tried to play hero. Oh, I'll, I'll fix your tire after I just sliced it. Like, what the fuck? Sorry for my language, but this case just pisses me off. And I'm going to say worse things. And if you can't handle that, you might as well just leave now. So, to make things worse, Ronald Kennedy then pulls a knife and puts it against Becky's ribcage and orders the two girls to get into Jenkins' car. Shortly after they entered the car, Becky and Amy asked the men where they were taking them. But instead of responding, Kennedy reached back and violently punched Becky and Amy and proceeded to choke them. <laughs> 
So, obviously terrified, Becky and Amy cowered together on the floor in the back seat. I, I can't even imagine what they were thinking and feeling in this moment. Like, not being able to see where they're going, not being able to talk, just absolutely fucking terrified. And all they had was each other. Like, that... Oh, that just puts things into perspective with having younger sisters. If that were me in that situation, I don't know what I would do. I, It's just sad. So during the ride, both Kennedy and Jenkins drank beer and were, quote, pretty much drunk, but were said to know exactly what they were doing. Jenkins drove the vehicle to a canyon area a little past Alcova, which is about 30 miles from Casper, and parked the car next to the Fremont Canyon Bridge. The girls then asked if they were going to be killed and expressed their love for each other. In the pitch darkness, Kennedy took Amy from the car to see the, quote, big man in a nearby shed. Becky was ordered to stay in the vehicle. Now, here's the the rape warning, the sexual assault warning. Um, it is pretty brutal, and I will let you know that now. Kennedy then proceeded to sexually assault and beat Amy, and after he was finished with the attack, he dumped little Amy's body off the bridge. After Kennedy returned to the car alone, he and Jenkins both sexually assaulted Becky, a virgin. She then thanked them for not allowing her sister Amy to witness it. Becky believed or hoped that Amy was in the shed near the bridge. That poor girl thanked these men for not letting her sister who is dead see her get brutally fucking raped and even worse she thought her sister was alive in the shed so she was hoping 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 that her sister was alive in that shed and little did she know that those motherfuckers dumped that little girl's body off the fucking bridge becky was told not to put her underwear or bra back on she was then taken by Kennedy and Jenkins to the bridge. Jenkins started choking her and told Kennedy that they had to make sure that Becky died. Soon they dumped her off the bridge too. She landed at the bottom of the rocky canyon about 40 feet from the bridge. Back in Casper, Amy and Becky's mom, Tony Case, started to get worried when the girls weren't home yet. So she drove to the grocery store to see what was going on and she found Becky's car still sitting there with a flat tire. Concerned, she calls the local police, and when the police interviewed the store clerk in the neighborhood, nobody had seen or heard anything except two men. So John, I'm sorry, I'm gonna butcher these names, John Geodick and Jim Hart were sitting in the vehicle in the grocery store parking lot waiting for their wives to return from shopping and noticed both Becky and Amy leave the store and walk to Becky's car. Both men testified later to Becky's and Amy's appearance. They also identified Kennedy in court as the man they saw speaking with Becky and Amy and testified that they observed the two girls entering Jenkins' car. So besides these witnesses, there was nothing to go on, but... Then, the next morning, the police department gets a call from an elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Strasser, who found a young girl near the Fremont Canyon Bridge while they were fishing. This girl had used the rest of her energy to tell them that she was sexually assaulted, strangled, and dumped off that bridge, and that her sister was still down there. They said that this girl was naked from the waist down, covered in dried blood, black and blue, 
and her flesh was actually coming out of her hip, and she was slumped over on the side of the road. They said that she wasn't able to walk, and they had to carry her to the car. This girl was 18-year-old Becky Thompson. She recounted that when she was thrown off, she hit some rocks and ricocheted into the water. She said the water alerted her, and she trudged her way to the shore. And what's so sad is this girl was in so much pain. She wanted to cry and scream for help, but she was so, so terrified that these guys were still up there and they were going to come down and finish the job. So she decided she's just going to hide in the rocks. Mind you, it's 30 degree weather in the middle of the night. She is half naked and on the verge of death. She wraps herself in her long brown hair and waits for the sun to come up, hoping someone will see her. Next morning, when the sun begins to start rising, she starts to pull herself up the canyon walls. Again, she can't feel her legs right now, so she's literally using all of her upper body strength to pull herself up the steep canyon. And that's when Mr. and Mrs. Strasser found her. When Becky finally arrived at the Natron County Memorial Hospital, she was seen by the doctor, Arnold Kraut who testified later that although Becky was cold and badly injured, she was alert, conscious, and cooperative. Dr. Krause found severe bruises all over Becky's body, some of which required considerable suturing. He also noted that she had multiple pelvic fractures, a swollen eye, and had been fighting for her life since they threw her off. Becky told of the ordeal, including that she had been raped and that the two men had attempted to strangle her and that she had been thrown off the Fremont Canyon Bridge. Medical experts later testified that the serious facial and throat injuries to Becky were not due to the fall from the bridge, but rather were due to the strangulation and blunt strikes to the face. The fall from the bridge, however, did result in various broken bones, fractures to Becky's pelvis and ilium, and a separation of Becky's sacroiliac joint. <laughs> I probably just butchered that. I'm so sorry. A pelvic examination disclosed lacerations and abrasions of the external opening of the vagina and white fluid in the vagina, which proved to be semen. For definite injury to the hymenal ring, which was consistent with rape. Yeah. So these men are absolutely fucking dog shit. Sadly, Amy had died. It was determined that Amy's death had been resulted from falling from such a height that the cervical spinal axis was forced through the base of her skull, directly injuring the vital centers of the base of the brain. Amy also suffered multiple rib fractures, a collapse of the left lung, and extensive hemorrhaging and soft tissues surrounding the heart and at the base of her neck. Mrs. Case identified the body of her daughter, Amy, that afternoon at the county coroner's office. I just want to say this. A fall from that bridge to the bottom of the canyon is 112 feet. At the bottom, it's just sheer rock that covered the area from the surface to the water on each side of the bridge. And if you follow my Facebook page, you'll see a picture of this. Oh my God, it's absolutely insane. So later, Becky Thompson gave police a description of her two abductors and a description of the Jenkins Chevy Impala vehicle. She shortly identified Jenkins and Kennedy as her abductors, and they were arrested in Casper. This is my description of them. Um, you can make your own decision on the pictures that I posted, but... <clears throat> and I'm sorry for the language, but I really don't give a fuck. Ronald Kennedy looks like a fucking alien. I'm sorry, but 
He's tall. He's skinny. He's greasy. He's got big eyes. Like, ugh. And then Jerry looks like Bubbles off of Trailer Park Boys. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's fat. He's greasy. He's disgusting. He looks like he hasn't showered in years. I'm sorry, but, you know, they deserve it. They deserve that shit. Now, here's what I found on these men. And I don't want to give a lot of thought to them or time to them because we're here for Amy and Becky. But the insane amount of witness testimonies in the trial about Kennedy and Jenkins is unbelievable. And the stories that are told are are going to put everything into perspective about why these men had the audacity to do this. So... When the men were brought in, Dr. Lincoln Clark tested Ronald to see if he had any psychiatric disorders. And after three days of testing, he, di he diagnosed him with antisocial disorder with patterns of disturbing behaviors. Ronald's friends and family believed that he had schizophrenia or some sort of psychosis with the way he acted. And here are the examples that I found from court documents and testimonies. Hilda Kennedy, who is Kennedy's mother, testified that Kennedy was raised with four sisters and one brother in Casper. Kennedy's father did not work much and often frequented the bars. Accordingly, it fell upon Hilda to provide for the family. She worked for years as a dishwasher, a vegetable peeler, a potato peeler, and whatever was needed in order to provide groceries and clothing for the children. Her husband claimed that he was sick and could not work. He often came home drunk, and he would threaten the children. She recalled that Kennedy was more susceptible to illness than the other children and that he had nightmares. She recalled his imagining that a man was coming through the wall at night toward him. She considered him to be very odd. He was very fearful of the thunderstorms, and when they occurred, he pulled the shades down and covered up. On one occasion, he threw a plate of spaghetti in his father's face. There are five testimonies here about Kennedy and how absolutely insane he is so number one Frank Padilla Kennedy's brother-in-law he testified that he had observed unusual behavior by Kennedy once while the two were fishing in May of 1973 and when Kennedy had been drinking Kennedy's eyes got big before he blacked out and fell to the ground again in March of 1973 Kennedy came to the Padilla house terrified because he had her buzzing around his head. Kennedy's eyes were really big. On another occasion, Kennedy remarked to Padilla that he thought he was going to beat Padilla up. Padilla stated that Kennedy was acting crazy. And number two, Diana Jean Kennedy, Kennedy's wife, testified that while Kennedy was in jail on the instant charges, he asked her to pick up some dirt and grass from the graves of their son and daughter who had died prematurely and bring them to him. Now this, this one... I mean, it's kind of odd, but I get it. I probably wanted some dirt and grass from the graves of their children that had died. So I get that one a little bit. Number three, Clyde E. Harbaugh, an acquaintance of Kennedy, stated that one night Kennedy drove his car to the front of his mother's home in Casper, jumped out, yelled vulgarities, and shot a gun twice, once into a parked car. Harbar was in his mother's home with June Green, who had been Kennedy's girlfriend. So, pretty much, Clyde was fucking his girlfriend, and so Kennedy got insanely upset and went over to the house and shot, shot at the house. Okay. So, number four. Phyllis June Patrick, formerly June Green, 
which was the girlfriend that we were just talking about, testified that she was married to Kennedy on October 25th, 1966, until March 1968. She was pregnant when they were married. She was four months pregnant when he pushed her down, requiring hospitalization. She filed for divorce. Kennedy insisted that she had to sleep with him, and when she refused, he beat her up. She went to the hospital where it was ascertained that she had broken a nose. After the baby was born, she complained that Kennedy left her at home with the baby while he went drinking. On one occasion, Kennedy slapped her and knocked her to the floor. She stated that she was afraid of Kennedy. Number five, Lorraine Mullen testified that she had known Kennedy for 12 years. In July 1972, she and her husband went with Kennedy to the Beacon Club in Casper. Kennedy had been drinking, and all of a sudden Kennedy went into like a daze is what she says. His eyes were very wild, and he was mumbling. About 45 minutes later, Kennedy calmed down. About two weeks later, Kennedy came to the Mullen house where he drank. Again, his eyes became very wild, and he was mumbling nonsense for about an hour. She recalled that his pupils were very big and that he has, quote, wild eyes. So after hearing all these testimonies, it kind of makes sense of why everybody's, like, said that he was kind of insane. Because he was. It seems like when he drank, he kind of went crazy, you know? Like, something just clicked. But that's just me. So, later, you know, the doctor that had to test him for any psychiatric disorders, he had told the family in the court that he didn't suffer from any psychosis or schizophrenia. His childhood did not have anything to do with the abduction and that he knows right from wrong. He just has poor emotional control. And he knew what he was doing when he hurt these girls. So pretty much Dr. Clark said, no, this is bullshit. He does not have anything wrong with him. He knew exactly what he was doing when he did what he was doing. And now he's trying to claim insanity when that's not the case because he knows right from wrong. Jenkins' defense argued that he was too drunk to form intent and was under the control of Kennedy, but evidence shows he knew what he was doing, and he was definitely co-conspirator. Like, duh, you were the one that choked her. Fuck you mean. For example, here's some evidence that um, we have from the testimonies and the case files. So, Becky's underwear was found on the roadway near the bridge, for one. Two, hair samples removed from the back seat section of the Jenkins vehicle were consistent with the hair of Becky and Amy. Blood samples from Jenkins' vehicle and on rocks in the canyon were consistent with the blood group A attributable to both Becky and Amy. Becky's optometrist identified an eye lens found on the back seat floor of Jenkins' car as one of the lenses he had fitted for Becky, stating that this left eye lens had been scratched almost beyond repair. And Becky testified that Jenkins is the one who had strangled her and told Kennedy that they needed to kill her. So, none of the men testified, and no confessions of either defendant were introduced at trial. Jenkins relied on the presumption of innocence and intoxication as his defense. He called no witnesses. At the close of the evidence, Ackerman tried to get an acquittal on the grounds that the prosecution had failed to show that Kennedy was not acting under an irresistible impulse or that Kennedy was able to form a specific intent. Counsel for Jenkins also tried to get an acquittal for Jenkins. Both motions were obviously fucking denied. Denied. Er, you thought.
Only five hours of deliberation, and both men were found guilty and were sentenced to death. But four years later, unfortunately, the death penalty was abolished, so they ultimately got sentenced to life with possibility of parole. <sighs> yeah, unfortunately. Becky was absolutely fucking terrified. She was thinking these men were going to get out and come finish the job. I, I don't blame her for feeling this way, because apparently Ronald quote thrived in prison he was able to get a pet go on a date he was able to have visits with his third wife and listen to this bullshit he was let out of prison to go to his sister's funeral which was right by becky's house i'm sorry but in my opinion life for life that motherfucker should not be able to step foot outside of the gates. He isn't getting rehabilitated. He killed a child, he raped her, and he attempted to kill her older sister. Fuck that. He needs to be locked up with no possibility of getting out. After the trial, the family was so grateful that they got justice for the poor girls. But, unfortunately, it was said that Becky was never the same after this. Becky tried her best to live a normal life. She worked as a meter maid um, for the Casper Police Department and eventually in ad sales at Casper Radio Stations, KVOC, and then KTWL. During this time, she met her best friend, Lisa Isingle. She described Becky as thoughtful, always ready with the card for every occasion. She said Becky was a prankster as well. Becky loved practical jokes. Quote, a lot of times you could tell by the twinkle in her eye that she was up to something, she says. Becky shared details of the crime with Lisa as the two grew closer. <laughs> as the two grew closer, but Becky didn't cry. Um, she was very calm and somber, and would simply present the facts. That's apparently that's what Lisa says. Um, Becky once told Lisa about her escape up at the canyon, crawling backwards with her stomach falling out. It was just so harrowing to hear. Lisa says. During this time as well, Becky had met her husband, Russ, but she was fighting her own demons and was struggling with alcohol addiction, which in turn led to a divorce. So she just focused on her and her daughter for a while, but then she met her new boyfriend. Um, I couldn't find his name, but it didn't last very long. I mean, everything was going good, you know, or so they thought. Becky struggled with her survivor's guilt. She was severely depressed, and she was overwhelmed with the thought that Kennedy and Jenkins were possibly getting a new trial after appeals. I mean, it consumed her. On July 31st, 1992, Becky returned to the Fremont Canyon Bridge with her daughter and the man she was dating. She told the man that she wanted to go out there and pay her respects to her sister, which makes sense. You know, she wants to go out. She wants to visit. She wants to talk with her sister. I mean... I get it, but while they were there and they were about to leave, her boyfriend in Vale, who was her daughter, started walking back to the car, and when he turned around towards the car, he heard a crash, and when he looked back, Becky was gone. He quoted saying, she just had to be there. The more I told her not to go out there, the faster she went. Her autopsy had said that she did have alcohol in her system, and she had recently stopped taking her antidepressants. It said that her neck was broken and her clothes had actually made an imprint on her body from how hard she hit the water. When Detective Davola and his crew went out to the bridge that day, they discovered that a sudden thunderstorm had arrived and a stiff wind was whipping fat raindrops through the air. Becky 
was finally with Amy. Not only mentally, but this time physically. Nobody knows for sure if it was an accident or if it was intentional for her to go off that bridge that day. Lisa, her best friend, told the press, quote, I'm not going to say she wasn't contemplating it the way everything was caving in on her, but I don't think she'd do that to Vail. This is, it's just so sad. Her daughter was only two at the time. Becky, she was, she was just troubled. She had that guilt that she brought her sister to the grocery store that day. and The guilt that she got in the car with her sister and drove with these men. It's, it's just sad all around. It really is. During her funeral, Joseph P. Murphy, an internist who treated and counseled her, said, quote, Becky, have no guilt about Amy. As those of us who knew her well know, she was troubled so that it was Amy, not she, who was taken that first night. Becky and Amy are at last together again. When Becky first came to see him professionally in 1985, wow, okay, 1985, he recalled she wrote on a form, quote, I want to be normal again. And at the service, he spoke as if to her, saying, Becky, you are normal. Who of us here today could not live through her awful experiences and not bend and break? Her parents said, as you already know from the death of Amy 19 years ago, the loss of a child is the ultimate loss. This is just the final result of what happened that night so long ago. Once the service was over and they walked outside, it was again thunderstorming and raining over Casper, Wyoming, as a final reminder of that night in 1973. Becky's ashes were spread on top of her sister Amy's grave, and the headstone had sisters engraved into it. There was also a bench that was built out of the stone or the granite from the canyon that read, Remember September 25th, 1973. This tragedy haunted this town for decades. They put up a chain link fence on the bridge railings so that this couldn't happen again, and even a kid Becky and Amy grew up with ended up writing a book about them and the situation. It was said that he went to the canyon and spent the night to understand what Becky had went through. He said in his book that even with clothes and uninjured, it was worse than what he had experienced in the military. Eight years after the book had been written, he released some edited portions from his interviews, including that during Becky's trial testimony, Ron Kennedy drew his fingers across his throat, inconspicuously still terrorizing her, though she was finally beyond his sinister grasp. Now you know why I call them scum. That's what they are. They're the scum on the bottom of my shoe. When I step in my dog shit, that's what they are. Jerry Jenkins died on October 29th, 1998, while incarcerated at the age of 54. Mm, tragic. Ronald Kennedy, now 67, is still serving a life sentence in Rollins. So he is still in there. He will never get out. Tony Case, their mother, now 80, lives in Bakersfield, California. Her husband, Jack, who was Becky's stepfather, died, and she now lives alone with her dog. Becky's daughter, Vale. She is married, and she now lives in Chicago. She's living her life, and she still talks and is very, very close to her grandmother, Tony. So this case was, it was just absolutely horrific. And I can't even imagine what these girls went through and what Becky had to endure after. I hope this family gets some peace knowing that Becky isn't suffering anymore and that she's with her sister now and that the scum of the earth pieces of trash are dead or living the rest of their life behind bars. 
Now, I just want to make a little note to my listeners because I am very, very big on mental health. I've struggled with it my whole life, and I know others struggle with it. Now, please, if you are ever, ever, ever feeling like you are not worthy or you are not good enough or that you do not want to live anymore, do not be afraid to reach out. You can email me. You can message my Facebook Just know that I love you and I care about you and that you are not alone like you believe you are. Please reach out for help. Do not try to fight this alone. That is it for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Even though it was awful and sad, it deserves to be told. And these victims deserve to be celebrated for their strength and their perseverance. Thank you for listening to Criminal Haunts. Um, Don't forget to follow the podcast. I know a lot of people forget to do that, but if you click up there, you can... You'll be able to follow along with me when I post a new episode every Sunday night. Um, you can email me at criminalhaunts1 at gmail.com or I just started a Facebook account in a Facebook group where I post photos of the cases so that you can see visuals of what I'm talking about. I post updates. I post discussions. Um, if you can leave a rate and review below, it helps me and it helps the podcast reach new audiences and it grows. So that way more people can listen to these stories. And again, I mean, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Watch your back and stay safe.